on to Horror Court Trash Over, the show that discusses all the masterpieces and trash pieces of genre cinema. I'm Gary. And I'm Chris. And it's the end of the month, so you know what that means. It is original versus remake time again. Yay. <laughs> you might notice we said that with a little less enthusiasm than last month. Uh, yeah. Um... I would, I don't know, it it pretty much formulate now, isn't it? <laughs> no, because last month was good. Three fucking films. Three films. Three fucking all films. Th- wow, it was a threesome. A three, uh, original versus a threesome, but all three films were good. Yes. And we're back with the classic one great, one shit formula. Yeah. And this month we're discussing Poltergeist. Ooh. Not to be confused with Poultrygeist, the film about a killer turkey. Well, yeah, I mean, I, I did suggest that we do Poltergeist and Poultrygeist. Would have been um, better. I actually do think we would have enjoyed it a little more, um, but no. Starting off with the poll results, uh, <laughs> 94% of you chose the original, well done, and then that strange little 6% of you um, must have been very drunk whilst watching the remake. <laughs> uh, no, you can't usually you can't even say your usual line everyone has seen fucking poltergeist yeah that is everyone true, actually. Has seen this that shit. is true 6% of you have a thing for Sam Rockwell I well I mean that's probably where it comes from yeah yeah poltergeist horror classic yes yes I mean, there's no denying that either way. No. It's a milestone. It's a milestone. It, it is. It is. It's um, where... And I know this is going to sound quite strange, but it's where horror, for me, kind of became family-friendly. Yeah. Uh, in a way. I mean, it's not a family-friendly film necessarily, but um, it, it is kind of a gateway for a lot of people into horror. It is, it is. It brought comedy into horror in a way that makes it at least teen-friendly. Uh, I think if we didn't have Poltergeist, we wouldn't have the likes of Lost Boys, uh, Monster Squad, Night of the Creeps, Fright Night. You know, all these 80s bubblegum horror comedy films, you know, they're, they've all come from the success of Poltergeist. Yeah, it's the kind of film that you, your mum wouldn't actually have an issue with you watching. Yeah. Because it's a fucking PG. Yeah, it is a PG. I mean, it's, it's the most intense PG ever made. Yeah, it's not a PG. <laughs> but technically it is, or it, was. It was, was. Was a PG. So it's the kind of film that would have been on TV. Uh, I also credit Jaws with this as well. Yeah, yeah. Where your parents would watch and they wouldn't actually mind you watching along with them. Um, you obviously wouldn't get that with a lot of horror films, you know, fucking if Hellraiser was on TV, your mum wouldn't be sitting you down at 10 years old to watch that, would she? Well, well, exactly. Yeah. I mean, you know, I I watched this early on, uh, into my getting into horror, um, but it, it scared the shit out of me. Like, it's, it's creepy. It's not so much creepy when you've watched like a thousand fucking times, but... When you first watch this film, it, it really... The fact that it's disguised as a family film, you know, it makes a lot of the iconic horror scenes within it really scary. Yeah. Um, for me, here's me telling you about, you know, family-friendly horror. Um, I didn't actually watch it when I was younger. <laughs> um, I knew of it, you know, I've known of it for, for many, many years. Um, but I didn't 
really properly watch it until quite recently. Mm. You know, proper sit down, watch yeah. it from start to end. Um, but obviously, there's iconic imagery in, in it. You, yeah. you know, it's been referenced here, there and everywhere. Yeah. Um, it's, it's one of the most influential horror films of all time. I mean, you look at, you know, the, the phase that we were going through with horror... Uh, between 2009... Do you know what? We watched The Conjurer 3 last night, recently as well. Uh, it hasn't really gone away. The the whole modern haunted house thing, it, it's, it stems from Poltergeist. I mean, you look at Insidious, Insidious is pretty much a direct rip-off. Like, I love Insidious, but there's even some of the same lines of dialogue in that film from this film. Exact same premise. Paranormal Activity 3 is the exact same. The Conjuring itself is based on a true story, but it still takes things from Poltergeist. Um, you know, there's so many modern horror films that owe a great debt to Poltergeist. Yeah, no, absolutely. Um, it's a lot of horrors based, uh, I mean, right at the beginning in, in the, the supernatural, but it was always sort of in a... a far off place or in a creepy castle uh, people always seem to have to go out of their way to find the horror yeah. in, 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 a, in a way um, this brought horror into the home the you know and the antagonist of this film is essentially the home itself yeah yeah you know and I, I can't think of any film before that that did this was definitely that. the first i mean every haunted house film before this was in a big stereotypical haunted house or castle um you know you knew what you were in for but this puts it in a suburban home and it's it packs a punch because of that you know yeah. and and like i said it's still going to this very day absolutely so getting into it uh, the original poltergeist was released in 1982 uh directed by horror legend and previous star of the podcast toby hooper uh, who has, of course, directed, as I mentioned before, the likes of Texas Chainsaw Massacre, Salem's Lot, Life Force, The Fun House, Toolbox Murders remake, the list goes on. Um, but was it, though? Oh. We'll get more into it shortly, it but this film is also written, produced, and let's face it, directed by Steven Spielberg, the uh, creator of family-friendly horror films like Jaws and Jurassic Park. Yeah. Um, but yeah, we'll get into that shortly. Uh, made on a budget of $10.7 million and made $121.7 million out of box office. Yeah, Steven Spielberg printed money back yeah. in the day. This was released within a week of E.T. Yeah. And it still made that much money. Yeah. So, both of the terrors that plagued, uh, plagued Robbie came from Steven Spielberg's own fears as a child. He also had a fear of clowns and a tree outside of his window. I see. Drew Barrymore was considered for the role of Carol Ann, uh, but director Steven Spielberg wanted someone more angelic. It was Barrymore's audition for the role, however, that landed her the part of Gertie in E.T. Nice. So yeah, well done, Drew Barrymore. You get that cash. Um, one big part of this, which we'll go into now, is the Poltergeist curse. Would you like to sum up what the Poltergeist curse is? Well, it's essentially... Um... The idea that many people linked to the film have had some very unfortunate events before them. 
Um, two of the cast members uh, were unfortunately murdered. Uh, one of them, the, the, the older sister, um, only a, a couple of months after the film was released. Yeah. Uh, yeah and another, another um, actor, uh, I can't remember his name. Well... I have the name here. Oh, you Lucky have. For you. Oh, okay. I just, I just want to bring somebody. Here's me trying to remember it. Trying to steal the show. Wow. Sorry, I forgot to revise for the podcast. It's uh, so a yeah. So as as Chris mentioned, you know, it's an urban legend of sorts, uh, based around the fact that you know unfortunate deaths, uh, as well as other strange events as well. It's believed by some to have been caused by the use of real skeletons on set. Uh, this became the focus of the E! True Hollywood story, Curse of the Poltergeist, amongst many, many, many other documentaries about this. Uh, yeah, so real human skeletons were used in the swim pool scene uh, because the crew thought it would be too complicated and expensive to get fake ones. Really? Lovely. <laughs> Joe Beth Williams was not made aware of this until after the scene finished. Lovely. <laughs> I hope they were clean. <laughs> Dominique, she gets really close to them as well. Hopefully. Yeah. I hope they were thoroughly washed. Uh, Dominique Dune, who plays Dana Freeland, and Heather O'Rourke, who plays Carol Ann, uh, are buried in the same cemetery at Westwood Memorial Park in Los Angeles. Uh, on October 30th, 1982, Dune was strangled by her ex-boyfriend in the driveway of her West Hollywood home. She died on November 4th at the age of 22, having never regained consciousness. On February 1st, 1988, uh, O'Rourke died of intestinal stenosis uh, at the age of 12 after being in the other two Poltergeist films. And Lou Perryman, who plays Pugsley, was also killed with an axe by a 26-year-old man uh, in Austin, Texas on April 1st, 2009, and he was 67 years old. Yeah. That is, uh, that's quite... You know, it's it's deaths. weird. It's weird. Uh, Joe Beth uh, Williams. Unfortunate death. Yeah. Oh, absolutely. Joe Beth Williams had a supernatural experience during the making of the film. Whenever she came home from filming, the pictures on the walls of her house were crooked. Every time she fixed them, they would hang crooked again. And Zalba Ru- Zalda Rubinstein, slay queen that she is, uh, also had an experience when a vision of her dog came to her and said goodbye to her. Hours later, her mother called her and told her, uh, told Rubenstein that her dog uh, passed away that very day. Oh. Yeah, it's it's fucking weird. I mean, you know, the the latter, the, the supernatural stuff, I mean, obviously, you know, everyone's got their own beliefs. You take that with a pinch of salt. Um, but the deaths, that, that is fucking weird. Yeah, it is. I, I think it's just a coincidence. Mm. Um, a very unfortunate one. Um, but yeah, I think it's just a coincidence. I wouldn't, I wouldn't say there's a curse on the film. Do you think that's made more people watch it over the years? Because it's not the only films who have done this, is it? Um, no, I don't, I don't think it would make people watch the film. Um, I, I, I don't think so. Um, I mean, isn't there one linked to The Omen? The Omen, The Exorcist. one linked to The Exorcist. Twilight Zone. Yeah, all these films... Um, I didn't know about the Twilight Zone one. Um, I, I know well, about I mean, yeah. I know about the unfortunate deaths. Aren't we I? all know that's probably more incompetence than yeah. curse. Um, but all these sort of um, supernatural or, or religious films kind of have these these ideas yeah. around them. But I, I don't know. I don't think so. During uh, all the horrors that proceeded whilst filming Poltergeist, the only scene that really scared Heather O'Rourke was the scene where all the toys were flying behind her and she was being dragged off her headboard. Uh, 
Uh, Steven Spielberg had to stop everything, took her in his arms and said that she'd never have to do that scene again. Oh, what a nice awesome. guy. Hey, wait, shouldn't that have been Toby uh, Hooper? Until, until <laughs> I haven't seen the sequel, but I'm assuming there's going to be similar scenes in the sequel. Oh, gotcha. Yeah. Um, Spielberg hired Toby Hooper after being impressed with the Texas Chainsaw Massacre. Yeah, because this is only eight years removed from the Texas yeah. Chainsaw It feels a million years oh, yeah. removed. Yeah. Um, but yeah, it's only eight years removed from the Texas Chainsaw Massacre. Yeah. Uh, when Robbie is being strangled, the clown's arms became extremely tight and Robin started to choke. And when he screamed that he couldn't breathe, uh, Steven Spielberg and Toby Hooper uh, thought that the boy was ad-libbing and just instructed him to look at the camera. When Spielberg saw Robin's face turn purple, he ran over and removed the clown's arms from his neck. So, yeah, so you get the idea that Spielberg was on set yeah. at all times. Yeah. Um, which for a writer producer, As uh, especially with ET, being made at the same time, yeah, being made all or at least in pre production or, or post production, yeah. depending on uh, the timeline, um, you think he would have somewhere else to be, but I, mm-hmm. I feel like maybe he was on set a hell of a lot, yeah. Uh, originally given an R rating, uh, the filmmakers protested it and got a PG. Uh, the PG-13 rating did not exist at the time, but was later introduced because of another Steven Spielberg film. Yes, yeah. Steven Spielberg has a lot of uh, weight in Hollywood, especially yeah. back then. I mean, I'm assuming all of his films were a massive success. Oh, yeah. Yeah, definitely. Has he had a dud? I don't think so. I don't... I mean, maybe... Box his Bomb. No, not that I can think of the top of my head. No. Um, what's the one he did with Tom Hanks recently who got nominated for Oscars? I don't know if that made much. Oh, was that, was that the one Meryl Streep? The Post. The yeah. Post. Oh, I don't know. Might not have. Mm. Really play one made money, didn't it? Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, that, I mean, you put his name on anything, it's going to fucking make money. It's true. Um, Spielberg and Hooper wanted virtually unknown actors to play the family in the film. Because uh, they wanted to add a realism to the family that would off-balance the ghost story. And they felt that if the audience watched well-known stars, then it would take them away from the realistic feel of the characters. <laughs> Sam Rockwell. Uh, at least that's what they've said in interviews since the release of the film. Although this explanation from Spielberg might be uh, an excuse to explain why he couldn't get any big names to star in the film. Because as a matter of fact, superstar Shirley MacLaine was approached by them to play Diane Freeland. And she turned them down because she didn't object to the terrorisation of children. And she's certainly not an unknown. <laughs> oh, wow. Could you imagine Shirley MacLaine? Oh, no, yeah. Especially when she goes full Slay Queen at the end. I see, Shirley MacLaine, because of, Shirley MacLaine's very much into the um, sort of psychic energy thing. I don't know. I don't know how to describe it. So uh, Shirley MacLaine would actually have done really well in the mm. uh, Zelda Rubenstein. Yeah, yeah. Um, even, not saying that she doesn't do a great job in the film. Uh, she's iconic in her own way. But she would actually, I think she would have done a yeah. real good job of that role. Uh, the highest grossing horror film of 1982. The eighth highest grossing film of the year. And it was re-released in October of 1982 to take advantage of Halloween. Uh, it was also shown in cinemas for one night only on October 4th, 2007. 
to promote the new and remastered DVD, uh, which was released five days later. And the event also included a uh, new documentary about the uh, about Poltergeist phenomena as well, which is on the DVD. I suppose when you can uh, get yourself down from an R rating to a PG rating... Oh, God, you're going gonna to be it. the highest grossing horror film of yeah, 1982. Yeah, you're going to re-release it at Halloween as well. Yeah. Um, Steven Spielberg offered uh, Toby Hooper the script for E.T., oh. uh, but when Hooper declined, he gave him uh, Poltergeist instead. Toby Hooper's E.T. Imagine that. No. <laughs> no. I've uh, I've seen... Um, Toby Hooper's film about space aliens <laughs> uh, or space vampires and it was not good. No, E.T. would be going around um, with tits and everything throughout. Not, not about Life Force, by the way. No, Gary's not <coughs> just mentioning tits for the sake of it. Uh, in Life Force, the aliens go around with all their bits and bobs. Wow, you say that. The woman goes around full of frontal course, nudity, the woman, yes. but then there's appropriate censoring for the men. There is, of course. <laughs> you, you, no one wants to see a Willie on screen. Poltergeist special effects and score were both nominated for Oscars, but lost to E.T. <gasps> so it's win-win for Steven Spielberg. Um, fucking out of score, should have definitely won an Oscar. The score's very good. And for the time, the special effects were great. But then E.T. score is very yeah. good, too. Yeah. Two very iconic scores right there. Um... Zelda Rubenstein has said uh, in interviews that she didn't like Toby Hooper because she could see he had a drug problem. Do you think psychically or visibly? Visibly. (laughs) By all accounts, Toby Hooper loved um, his cocaine, uh, particularly during the 80s. Um, Do you think that would have been what happened with Life Force? It's well documented. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, that's the reason for Life Force. Texas Chainsaw Massacre 2? Yeah. (laughs) Um... Zada Rubenstein uh, also had genuine psychic ability, claiming to have visions of things before they happen. Like before and after, yeah, before and after the film. Okay. Go on, girl. You give that psychic energy. Um, originally, as uh, Toby Hooper, Steven Spielberg and the screenwriters were plotting out the screenplay, Carol Ann was going to be killed in the first act and haunt the house in the second uh, they eventually decided this was too dark and then had her kidnapped by the ghost instead. Uh, in fact, eventually so many of the dark elements were removed because they wanted a PG so desperately. Um, so it could run as a double feature with E.T. So because of this, we only have one death and it's Tweety the Bird and a few injuries. Yes. That sounds very hereditary. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> like It's kind of like hereditary... Um, if the twist and the trailer <laughs> actually came together as yeah. one and made the film. Um, so the moment you've all been waiting for, who directed Poltergeist? <gasps> so, Spill I'll, that tea. I'll read out the trivia I've got. Oh my lord. Though on-screen credit goes to Toby Hooper, a wealth of evidence suggests that the most of the directorial decisions were made by Steven Spielberg. In fact, Spielberg had wanted to direct the film himself, but a clause in his contract stated that while still working on E.T., Spielberg could not direct another film. Hmm. Hmm. If only there was a cokehead director who made Texas Chainsaw Massacre lying around somewhere, (laughs) waiting to direct a big-budget film. Um, Hooper, though, had developed the film with Spielberg, and if Spielberg had wanted to wrest the film away from Hooper... It would have caused a rift between the filmmakers. 
Members of the cast and crew, including executive producer Frank Marshall and Zala Runstein, uh, have stated that Spielberg cast the film, directed the actors, though this has often been uh, contested by several other actors, and designed every single storyboard for the film himself, although Hooper has maintained he both collaborated on and did fully half of the storyboards. Based on the evidence, the DGA opened a probe into the matter, but found no reason that co-director credit should go to Spielberg. When questioned about who had the greater control over this film, Spielberg or Hooper, Spielberg said Toby isn't a take-charge sort of guy. Uh, if a question was asked and an answer wasn't immediately forthcoming, I'd jump in and say what we could do. Toby would nod in agreement, and that became the process of a collaboration. So he directed a Steve's film. Yeah. Um, Co-producer Frank Marshall spoke out to the press and claimed the creative force of the film was Steven Spielberg. Toby was the director and was on set every day, but Steven did the design for every storyboard and was only absent for three days during the shoot because he was in Hawaii with George Lucas. Oh, okay, what's going on there? There was a skate going on between me. Spielberg and Lucas. Um, so yeah, discuss. What, what's your thoughts? Um, on, on now you've heard of the supposed evidence. And... Yeah. Um, I mean, this is a Steven Spielberg yeah. film. He's practically admitted it. Yeah. It's, it is a Steven Spielberg film. Um, I mean, Toby Hooper directed, but he pretty much had Steven Spielberg's hand up his ass. Publishing exactly thing. what to say and what to do. If there's two of you on set and one takes a while to reply, so you jump in and then the other just nods in agreement, you're the director. Yeah. I mean, he wrote and produced it. Yeah. You know, so it's got his seal on it anyway. Even if it came out that he was never on set, mm. you know, he wrote and produced it. Yeah. So it's got that Spielberg about it. But do you remember when we did a uh, Toby Hooper marathon? Mm-hmm. Podcast to that like saw fault. It did, yeah. It, it, the, it did. You know, all the other films, they all have that little touch of Toby Hooper and then you can see. Like that yeah. little bit of signature style. This doesn't have a single frame that looks like it's from a Toby Hooper film. Not really. It's like it's like Back to the Future. I always thought that Steven Spielberg directed Back to the Future. You know, when he's producing something, he he does make it his own. Yeah. But this is ridiculous. This is Pure Spielberg. Yeah. Yeah. It is. It is. Um, yeah. I don't, I don't think there's any doubt in anyone's mind no. that Toby Hooper was just a cover for him not to get into trouble with the director's guilt. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. Yeah. So there you have it. Exclusively. You know. I mean, Toby Hooper got... He must have got his pay. Oh, fair play to it, Toby you know, Hooper for his money. Him, got his name out there. You know. This is biggest... It's highest grossing film. Yeah, so. it will be. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, when originally released in the UK, the film was anticipated as being an X certificate, uh, which meant at the time that no one under 18 could see the film. And so it's Poltergeist what introduced the 15 certificate. Ah. Which replaced the old AA rating. Um, and UIPs wished to release the film as soon as it was possible was granted uh, with a 15. And it was introduced in November 1982. So it, I think it was around a bit before then with its PG. Yeah. But then got its 15. 
Uh, Jerry Goldsmith wrote the theme song and the theme song to The Omen. But whereas The Omen got praised from critics for being so dark and foreboding and effectively setting a menacing demonic tone, the Poltergeist theme was criticised for being too Disney-filled and Leave It to Beaver. Disney-fied. Um, Disney-fied. Disney-filled. Yeah. Um, Leave It to Beaver, it was compared to. Bullying the audience into an inappropriately cheerful and family-friendly state. That reminds me, I wonder what our friends, uh, our podcast regulars, Siskel and Ebert, uh, thought of this. Ebert, should I say. Siskel and Ebert? Yeah. yeah. I mean, it normally, say? it's always in the trivia, but nope. Oh, God. I, I, I assume they watched the scene in the bathroom, like, yeah, this is disgusting. I'm not sure. He was a bit of a hypocrite when it came to certain things. Yeah. It wasn't he. Oldie, but... Uh-huh. Um, I'm not sure. Oh! Roger Ebert gave Poltergeist three stars <gasps> out of four oh and called God. it an effective thriller. Not so much because of the special effects as because Hooper and Spielberg have tried to see the movie Strange Events through the eyes of the family members instead of just standing back and letting the special effects overwhelm the cast along with the audience. And... Hear me out. Mm-hmm. I completely agree. Yeah. Yeah. Wow. He spoke sense for once. Oh, we've agreed with him a couple well, of yeah, times. Yeah, he was right about last house on the left, even if it made him a massive hypocrite. Yeah. Um, Joe Beth Williams was hesitant about shooting a swimming pool scene because of the large amount of electrical equipment uh, positioned over and around the pool. In order to comfort her, Steven Spielberg crawled into the pool with her to shoot the scene and said, if a light falls in, we'll both fry. Okay, I mean, it works, and she filmed the scene, but fucking hell. Okay, yeah, no, I'm, two people aren't dying, what the fuck? <laughs> you should be worried about the fucking dead body next to her. I didn't even know about that. The main plot of the film, um, written by Spielberg, the part concerning a uh, family molested by supernatural phenomenon, I don't mean it's molested in that way before you oh say it. Oh my god! Um, is loosely inspired in the Seafoods case. I don't think that's how you use the word molested. <laughs> they must be very excuses. Can in you? February 1958, the four members of the Herman family, formed by the husband and businessman James, the wife and nurse Lucille, and the two children, Lucille Jr. and James Jr., uh, noticed uh, to live supernatural events in their home at 1648 Redwood Path in Seaford, a Long Island suburb, uh, which happened along uh, the fall month. The case acquired fame after it was covered by the mass media of those times as time and life, uh, being investigated by the local authorities in different times, uh, as Officer James Hughes, Detective Joseph Tozy, and Lieutenant Richardson from the police department uh, being uh, assigned to the case. It was also investigated by Robert Zyder, uh, physicist from Long Island's uh, Brookhaven National Laboratory. Uh, trying to Laboratory? Find... Laboratory. I said laboratory. <laughs> trying to find a scientific explanation to the events as well as uh, a group of scientists um, who also looked into it as well. Deeply Catholics, the family asked uh, the help of Father William McLeod of the Church of St. William in an attempt to uh, exorcise an entity who'd, who was named Popper. Popper. <laughs> After that, one of his powers was that of any kind uh, because uh, they named him that because he makes bottles pop by himself, not because he's doing poppers in the living room. Um, reportedly, the different attempts to investigate caused uh, the events. 
to gain intensity and violence, being recorded uh, of a total of 67 disturbances uh, in that year. Uh, and when the activity stopped without a sudden apparent reason, uh, that was it. Yeah, so apparently it still remains unsolved, is the point I'm getting at. And that was the inspiration for the spell. Ah. Popper, Popper the Ghost. Popper the Ghost. Uh, just so you know, molest can also mean pester or harass someone there we go. in an aggressive or persistent manner. Wasn't sexually molesting the family. Yeah. Um, yeah, so, I mean, you know, all that very interesting, very in-depth trivia, um, lots of good points to raise. And then that brings us to Poltergeist 2015. <laughs> Directed by Jill Keenan. Uh, oddly enough, the director of some episodes of Scream the Series. I loved Scream the Series. I only watched the first season. Um, I was fully invested in it up until they did that random season three, which I never watched. Um, Monster House. Do you know what? If any film is a great fucking homage to Poltergeist, it's Monster House. It's really fucking good. Okay. Uh, you've never seen it? Have you not seen it? No. It's an animated film, and it is it is Poltergeist, but animated. It's great. Okay. Which, so it's even more confusing as to where it went wrong with this. Mm-hmm. Uh, and City of Ember as well. I've not seen that. Um, produced by horror legend Sam Raimi. Unlike Steven Spielberg, Sam Raimi clearly just puts his name on films as a producer for a paycheck. So you was Craven do it? He is absolutely worth Russ Craven it. Yeah. Um, I mean, The Grudge last year, produced by Sam Raimi. Oh, was it? Yeah. Ew. That new basic film, The Unholy, that looks really basic, produced by Sam Raimi. Yeah. You know, he has produced some oh, shit. Oh, no. Absolute shit. Is it, is it called Sam Raimi present, uh, Presents? No. No. No, but he produced this um, for his Dark Castle, Dark House, whatever they're called. Um, yeah. Oh, dear. So, yeah, there's no mystery as to who directed this film. It certainly wasn't Sam Raimi. Um, made on a budget... Oh, wow, you don't know. We haven't seen one bad Sam Raimi film. Spider-Man 3? Yeah, that was studio. Was that bad? That was studio interference, and it wasn't. It wasn't studio complete. interference. Well, it wasn't a write-off. That's was always it? an excuse, isn't it? Studio. Well, it, it wasn't a write-off. We still enjoyed it. It just wasn't very good. Um, but he hasn't made a film as bad as this. No. Uh, budget thirty-five million. It made ninety-five point four million at box office. Modest success. Yeah, I suppose we didn't get a. I I know it was advertised a lot. I mean, marketing cost would have been pretty big as well for it. Because I I did see it everywhere. Yeah. Although, part of me thought it was an Elo Roth production, but okay. Well, explain a bit more. Um, Yeah, so brace yourself for some interesting trivia. Um, In a QA, uh, Saxon Shabino uh, admitted that she had never seen the original Poltergeist. Until filming was completed on this, she plays the older daughter. Okay. So, yeah, she didn't even bother doing the research. Um, well, what's the research as an actor? Oh, like, you wouldn't like, want to watch. If you were star- starring a remake what? of a film. Yeah, but then you run the risk of just copying what came before. That would have been fucking preferable. <laughs> but, you know, <laughs> if I did a remake of Sophie's Choice, playing Sophie then I wouldn't necessarily want to watch Sophie's Choice, the original, because I would just copy whatever Meryl Streep did. Well, 
you better not watch then just in case you get offered the role. Yeah, no, yeah. Um, yeah, I, have, I hope her name is Sophie in it. Because <laughs> it is her choice. I swear is it her, her choice? Is, is I swear it? her name is Sophie in <laughs> Sophie's choice. Um, it's not one of those random ones where it's just got a really random name that's got nothing to do with the film, I hope. Or I've just really embarrassed myself. Uh, Poltergeist was released in 3D. Was it? Yeah, which is strange. The gimmick kind of died down by that point. Um, I remember seeing it at the cinema and I thought 3D was really good. Oh. I think that kind of distracted me from the fact of how terrible the film was itself. Oh, I didn't get any... Were there any scenes like... That's, yeah, the drill scene... The whole oh, CGI I rope. So. Yeah. Yeah. Stuff like that. Oh, that's why the rope was CGI. Yeah. Oh, fucking hell. Uh, Rosemary DeWitt wanted to do the film after she experienced the engaged and lively audience reaction at the premiere of The Conjuring, oh, which she attended because it featured her husband, Ron Livingston. Oh, yes. Um, I've got a little fact what? for you. Uh, Rosemary DeWitt and Ron Livingston... Both in Sex and City. Are both... Excuse ah. me. <laughs> were both in the same episode of Sex and the City. Oh. Rosemary DeWitt was only in one episode. But they were both in the same episode but didn't f- feature together. No. Uh, and they got married in 2009. Well. Yeah. Well, that's Ron more Li- interesting than Ron Livingston film. being... Uh, Burger, who broke up with Carrie over a post-it note. Yeah. And uh, Rosemary DeWitt played um, Miranda's colleague that was concerned that she kept sleeping on the job because she's pregnant. Thank you very much. You're welcome. Um, yeah, so Rosemary DeWitt chose this film because she liked the, ira- the reaction to The Conjuring. Yeah? Yeah. This was released. I, I, just, I ain't gonna let lie. it sink in for a second. This was released after Insidious, after The Conjuring, after Paranormal Activity, after all those. They, they went back and remade the film that inspired all of those, but instead made it exactly like modern haunted house films. Yeah, it, it kind of. The problem is, it did. It tried to do both. Yeah. It tried to not only be a remake of Poltergeist. But also kind of be a remake of all the films that came after. Yeah. You know? Um, yeah. Just going back, Rosemary DeWitt, she's saying it's because she saw The uh, uh, the Conjuring and uh, the audience reaction to that. I ain't being funny. I didn't know who she was. <laughs> so I, I think maybe she was just trying to get whatever was coming along. Yeah. And just is my excuse for it. I'll take any old job. Thanks. Um, much like Paul from S Club 7's Brit Award, almost half of the costumes and props used in this film were sold to fans. Uh, in England. To fans? Well, yeah. Um, before the film even hit cinemas. How can you be a fan of a film before it's <laughs> even been in the cinema? This is this this brings me on to something. I'm, I'm going to go on a little bit. But, that, a... but even so, no matter what situation, that's fucking weird. Like, when he had desperate... Did they think it was going to bomb? Oh, here, buy our props, please. <laughs> I just couldn't be asked to carry them anymore. I'm just like, they were just in England. They were like, oh, mate, do you want, do you want these for... Yeah, these are from the original Poltergeist. For 50 quid. <laughs> are you a fan of our film before it's even been released? There's probably lies. Oh, this is from uh, The Conjuring 2. Here, take this. But then you'll defend 
them uh, releasing Funkos before the film's released. Chris, they sold their fucking belongings. So? There's a difference. <laughs> and I don't defend that. I think it's silly. I think it is. Um, here, here's a topic of conversation for you. Funkos being released for a film before the films even hit the theatres. Big pet peeve of mine. I hate it. And is, that, is that it? And Gary agrees. <laughs> I don't, I don't, are you going well, to answer me now? We're recording the fucking episode. They're not going to answer me now, are they? Yeah, let us know. Let us know what you think. Let us know. You never do, but let us know. <laughs> we have fan mail. I just forget to write it down. Um, someone actually made the Poltergeist uh, joke. I don't, oh, think no. they're aware, I don't think they're aware of Poltergeist existing, but on Instagram, um, one, of our, one of our listeners... Uh, said they might as well have called the remake Poltergeist. It exists, but I don't have to tell you. Um, yeah, yes, it should. No, um, it's chicken <laughs> shit. Thanks for listening. Um, yeah, but Chris, they sold their fucking belongings. Yeah. That seems really trashy. I mean, not in any other situation, but in a film, you've just made a film that you think is going to go out and make big money. <laughs> just seems trashy. Just like, it seems so trashy. Like, oh yeah, buy my clothes. just plummeted. It's like fucking, it's like Gary Newman giving away his jeans on fucking Facebook. You know, it's it's weird. Just don't. It's it's really weird. I don't know. I mean, Paul from S Club 7 had his issues. That's why he got rid of his Brit Award. But fucking, you know, guys, you just made a film that you're about to make loads of money from. What are you doing? Well, they didn't know they were going to make money from it. So they sold the fucking clothes of the actors just in case. Oh, well, I don't know. I don't know. It's just the clothes weren't that nice anyway. Um, well, considering they haven't got much money, they're a bit ambitious because they were going to cast Tom Cruise or Richard Armitage in the role of the dad. Who's Richard Armitage? I have no idea, but Tom Cruise. Mm. Is it most fucking big? Even more expensive than Sam Rockwell. Oh, of course. Um, wasn't it screened in advance for critics? Surprise, surprise. Oh, dear. And uh, director Jill Keenan stated that the house they filmed in is haunted. It re- is really haunted. Great. <laughs> so, nice. Poltergeist 1982, give it to us. Here we go. Wikipedia's best. Stephen and Diane Freeling live in Cuesta Verde, a California-planned community. Stephen is a successful real estate developer, and Diane looks after their three children, teen daughter Dana, preteen son Robbie, and five-year-old Carolyn. <laughs> Late one night, Carolyn inexplicably converses with the family's television set while it displays post-broadcast static. The next night, she again fixates on the TV and a ghostly white hand emerges from the television. Bizarre events occur the following day. Including the construction worker sexually harassing the older daughter. Yes. Whilst the mum laughs it off. Like, <laughs> she did laugh it off. <laughs> oh, you guys. I mean, that's a sign of the times, though, isn't it? I mean, the, the daughter was st- still in high school. The, yeah. She's just, le- she's just leaving her out. She's getting on the, a bike and they're like, ooh, yeah, ooh, ooh, yeah. <laughs> So, I mean, her reaction's amazing. Well, she very slowly uh, gives them the uh, middle finger, doesn't she? Yeah. <laughs> She's well, she says, up, she does up yours first and then gives the middle oh, finger. Excuse me. But yes, yeah, so bizarre events. Well, that's not so bizarre. I mean, <laughs> that's how women are treated all the time, unfortunately. Yeah. 
but the actual bizarre events occur the following day. A glass of milk spontaneously breaks, silverware bends, and furniture moves on its own. The phenomena initially seems benign, but soon grows more sinister. One stormy night, a gnarled backyard tree comes alive and crashes a limb through the window, grabbing Robbie. While Stephen rescues Robbie, Caroline is sucked into a portal that suddenly appears inside the closet. Her voice is heard emanating from the TV through the static. A small group of parapsychologists from UC Irvine, led by Queen Dr. Martha Lesh, arrive to investigate. Um, Martha Lesh, she don't do much in this film. No. Um, but that's kind of Beatrice Strait's thing. Uh, it's that she doesn't feature much in the film, but she does such a good job. Um, Beatrice Strait is probably most famous for Network, uh, for which she won an Oscar for Best Supporting Actress with only five minutes of screen time. <laughs> so it's kind of a thing, isn't it? Yeah. <laughs> um, they determined that there is a poltergeist intrusion involving multiple ghosts. Meanwhile, Stephen learns from his boss, Mr. Teague, that the Cuesta Verde development was built on the site of a former cemetery and informs Steve that the graves were moved close by to a new location. Dana and Robbie are sent away for their safety, while Dr. Lesh calls in Tangina Barons. <laughs> Tangina! Yeah, name's Tangina. <laughs> I forgot her name was Tangina. See, it looks so weird written down. Uh, Tangina Barons, a spiritual medium. Tangina states that the ghosts are lingering in a different sphere of consciousness. Does she say it like that? What, how does she say it? They're so lingering in a... Yeah, like that. I can't do that impression. I can only do Caroline. Okay, Caroline. <laughs> Tangina states that... <laughs> Tangina, Tangina sounds like a drink, like a fizzy <laughs> orange or tropical drink. Okay, this bitch is the human equivalent of a cocktail. Like, seriously, how yes. are you questioning this? Anyway. Tang- Her real name is Zelda, for fuck's sake. That's true. Tangina states that the ghosts are lingering in a different sphere of consciousness and are not at rest. They have become attracted to Karen Ann's life force. <laughs> Tangina detects a dark presence she calls the Beast, how dare you, <laughs> who is restraining Caroline and using her life force, oh no, not life, not Toby Hooper and life force, uh, and using her life force to prevent the other spirits from crossing over. It is discovered that the entrance to the other dimension is in the children's bedroom closet and exists through the living room ceiling. Oh, exist, exits, <laughs> my apologies. Um, so, I'm going to ask you the question now. What? The portal being the closet, mm-hmm. is this an allegory on coming out? Of course it is. It's Pride Month next month, yes. Yes. Uh, Diane, secured by a rope, passes through the portal, guided by the rope that has been threaded through both portals to the living room below. Diane retrieves Caroline, and they drop through the ceiling to the living room floor covered in ectoplasm. (coughs) (laughs) Chris, we're talking about children, for fuck's sake. What's... (laughs) Ectoplasm. That sounds dirty. What's ectoplasm? Is that... Tangina and ectoplasm. Tangina. Tangina. (laughs) Uh, 
ectoplasm. What is an ectoplasm? Am I being a bit dummy? Sticky yeah. ghost stuff. Sticky ghost. That, that don't help. Have you not seen the uh, the South Park meme? No. With the guy covered in jizz and he's like, it's a, it's a spooky ghost ectoplasm. No, is that a thing? Yeah. Ew. Oh, so I'm right to laugh. Though. Oh, yeah. People yeah. have made that. But it's, it's involving a child. It is. Stop, stop stop We're just talking about Diane. It's fine. As they recover, uh, recover, as they recover from the ordeal, Tangina proclaims. What does she proclaim, Gary? This house is clean. <laughs> what she says. Also, can we go back? Can you do a proper there here, please? Oh, did I? Did I not do the proper there here? Well, it didn't catch my attention if you did. So. Oh, you do it. No, you do it. No, you. I, I'm doing you do Tangina. You do much better. You're good at doing Carolan, so. No, I'm good at Tangina saying Carolan. Oh, for fuck's sake! They're here. There we go. Yeah, but... <laughs> Was it not great? Anyone looking? Oh, for I'm a sorry. Text. Uh... <laughs> Please continue with your Tangerine impression. Fucking. Anyone updating their ring doorbell uh, can use that. You've got my permission. Please continue. Uh, Shortly after, the other two children have returned home and the Freelings have begun packing to move elsewhere. During their last night in the house, Stephen goes to his office while Dana is on a date, leaving Diane at home with Robbie and Caroline. And a fierce new hairdo. The Beast, how dare you, ambushes Diane and the children aiming for a second kidnapping attempt. The unseen force drives Diane to the backyard in the pouring rain, dragging her into the swimming pool excavation site. Skeletal corpses and coffins float up around her in the flooded, muddy hole. (laughs) You need to grow up. Ectoplasm. Ectoplasm. Diane crawls out and rushes back into the house. She rescues the children and they escape to the outside as more coffins and decomposed uh, decomposed bodies burst through the ground. Stephen, accompanied by Teague, arrives home to the mayhem. Stephen realises Teague never relocated the cemetery for the Cuesta Verde development and merely moved the gravestones, leaving the bodies. The Freelings jump into their car and collect Dana just as she returns. They flee Cuesta Verde as the house implodes into the portal while stunned neighbours look on. The family checks into a Holiday Inn where Stephen promptly rips out the TV and shoves it outside. The end. Yeah. Yes. There we go. So. So. That's... Who's the real bad guy in Polgeist? Who do you think? Ah... the guy who didn't tell them that their house was built on Teague. An, an available. Yeah, so really, at the heart of it, it's kind of a um, commentary on, you know, commercialism, isn't it? Or Yeah, um, don't know what you're buying. That word, yeah. No, absolutely. And people would literally build on people's graves just to get a book. Also, it's a haunted house movie where the ghost doesn't try to make the dad gaslight the mum. Yes. Which is a fucking nice change. That's good. Yeah, yeah. Everyone believe. Everyone believes yeah. everyone. Like, yeah. from the get-go. Mm-hmm. They're like, oh, yeah, okay. If you say that's right, then that's right. Yeah. But we'll go deeper into comparisons soon, because first of all, we have to talk about a piece of shit film. Um, yeah, 2015 Poltergeist. 
Eric and Amy Bowen are a married couple looking to buy a house for themselves and their three children. 16-year-old Kendra, because it's 2015 now, 9-year-old son Griffin, and 6-year-old daughter Madison. Already, as soon as you're introduced, all of them are less likeable than the original family. Massively. Like, as soon as you're introduced, they're in the car bickering, got fucking iPads and iPhones and whatever else. Like, oh, are we in 2015, are we? Eric was recently laid off, but they're showing a house that has recently come into market that fits their price range. They have a price range. Um, so they purchase it and move in. Griffin immediately walks around the very normal looking house like he's in a horror film. Oh my God. Literally. The whole film, he walks around like he knows he's in a horror film. Yeah. Absolutely. The ghost scares everyone by making a kid's hair stand up and uh, opening the washing machine door. Ooh. We're introduced to Carrigan Burke through his YouTube channel. He is the disappointing, uh, insidious Tucker and Specs version of Tangina. Why on earth you'd ever replace uh, Tangina with a with Jared Harris doing an Irish accent? I don't know. I know. Do you think he should have done that role? Yeah. Jackie Weaver. Jackie Weaver definitely should have. Um, the first night they hear strange noises in the walls and Griffin finds a box containing clown dolls that were left at the house. Griffin is scared of everything because he got lost in the mall three years ago. Time to grow the fuck up. The dad uh, doesn't have a job because he was laid off and the mum is unemployed because the dad won't let her get a new job. And they just brought a new house. Yeah. If that's not lazy writing... What is? It, it, I think the idea is... I, I don't understand this whole him losing his job, her not working, money issues thing, because it's never really dealt with. No. It's just... I, 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 I suppose it's just a way of trying to um, make them more realistic or, or more um, likeable yeah, in, in, in a way. But it doesn't, because you're just kind of like, well, where do they get the money from for all of this? It, yeah. You're questioning things that you shouldn't really have to question in this kind of film. If they moved into a fucking council house, you know, and a little shit all over the place. Yeah. You know, you'd understand, but they have just moved into uh, a stereotypical rich white person house. Like, that's what it is. Yeah, well, also, and, and I know things are, uh, are different in America and, and, and the UK, um, particularly when the housing market and, and houses, but everyone acts like the house is a shithole. Yeah. It's perfectly nice. It's a nice house. Well, if you refer I mean, to the daughter, she's a teenager, so she's yeah, but rebellious. No, but even, like, when they go for the dinner party... They say it's a terrible neighbourhood. Yeah. And I'm like, it looks pretty quiet and, you know, nice to me. Homely. Yeah. I mean, here in the UK, if if you were in a bad area, <laughs> everywhere would be sort of... A boarded big... up. <laughs> well, yeah, boarded <laughs> up. And it'd be um, drunks on street corners. Yeah. It's the middle of the night and lights and electronic devices are turning on and off as an unseen force appears to move through the home. Uh, this wakes up Griffin, and he goes downstairs and finds Maddie talking to an unknown presence inside the television. She t- tells Griffin that someone is coming. Excuse me. And he attempts to. I got told off. And he attempts to unplug the TV, causing the lights to go out of control. Maddie then tells the family the iconic line. They're here. Yeah, that is the delivery as well. Honestly, to God. 
Show if you don't want to show the whole film, show that line. Yeah. If you're gonna copy anything from the film, that's it. Yeah. Not just no, yeah, they're here by the way, just to let you know. I mean that's the shit that you put in the trailer. Yeah. Yeah. They're here. Great, great. Who? Yeah, she says it was touching the TV screen. Absolutely no enthusiasm. Um, the next day, Kendra's phone breaks and she says the exact line of dialogue. This isn't a luxury item; it's a necessity. What if you need to retweet in an emergency? Kendra then wants her unemployed <laughs> parents to buy her a new phone. But then she raises a good point. When her mum tells her to get a job, she says, well, why don't you get a fucking job, you bitch? And the dad's like, oh, your kids are a job. Um, no, that's not how this works, hon. Eric's credit cards are all cancelled apart from one. So... Well, it, I, was, I was surprised that he said, you kids are her job. Mm. Because he was going on about how great of a writer she was. Yeah. So why didn't he say, you know... Writing's her job. I mean, you know, I'm not. I'm not gonna say. I mean, I'm not a father. I'm not a father of three, or a mother of three. Um, but I thought it was a bit weird that he'd been bigging her up as this great writer, yeah. and then said that being a mum was her job. Yeah. Again, something that isn't really answered or dealt with. In the Lazy writing. It just makes you question, and takes you away from what's actually important. Yeah, speaking of important stuff, uh, yeah, all of Eric's credit cards are cancelled apart from one. So he decides to go on a big spending spree where he buys a camera drone, new out back then, so it would been very expensive, a Pandora bracelet, uh, a pizza for Maddie, because that's all she wanted, and a new phone for Kendra. Yeah. On his only credit card. Yeah. His only credit card. So he's just brought a new fucking house yeah which is which is you know character building in any other kind of film but in in this it's kind of like, well how what what does any of this even mean what what is this yeah because it's not dealt with no it's not dealt with this whole issue of money and, and everything it's not it, it, his not having a job. It doesn't really mean anything no. in the context of the film. No. Meanwhile, Griffin finds a bunch of comic books piled up that fly towards the camera in 3D. <laughs> um, and then, when uh, Eric brings the presents home, he tries telling his dad about this. And when his dad doesn't listen to him, he says, Why doesn't anyone listen to me? It's true. <laughs> <laughs> and then... <laughs> The mum's like, oh, you're a fucking child. Fuck off, you twat. Um, she, and she essentially does. <laughs> She's like, oh, I thought Maddie was the child. <laughs> like, oh, my God. Well, he's a little bastard. We don't like him, so good. Um, Eric and Amy go to dinner with friends, leaving the three children at home, responsible adults. They learn that their house was built on an old cemetery um, in a shithole, although the property developer was supposed to have relocated the human remains. Kendra's phone goes all weird because in 2015 and she hears a strange sound in the laundry room. Whilst investigating the noise, the floor cracks and a corpse's hand emerges, uh, begins pulling at her foot, uh, but she manages to pull herself up. Meanwhile, Griffin notices the clown doll seems to be moving by themselves. 
One clown doll attacks him in a really funny shot of someone just waving this doll at the fucking camera. Um, but he destroys it with his foot and runs from his bedroom. He finds Maddie in her room, scared, crouching in a corner, and because he's a piece of shit, he tells her to stay there and just don't go near the closet. And yeah. leaves her there. Yeah, it does. Maddie is then lured by the light from her lamp and her favourite toy into the closet uh, before becoming lost in an unending void. As she turns to see her bedroom drifting further away, CGI hands drag her away. Yes. Griffin is grabbed through a window by the branches of the old tree outside the house, the CGI tree, which pulls him outside. Amy and Eric arrive home to see Griffin being tossed around in the tree branches, which releases its grip when they come close, uh, whilst Kendra hysterically tells her she can't find Maddie. Uh, yet the tree scene's just over, just like that. The family hears Maddie's voice... Uh, from the television, and Amy places her hand on the television, whilst Maddie's static hand is seen touching her from the other side of the screen. Yes, it's a flat screen TV. It is, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Amy and Griffin visit the paranormal research department for help. They come to the house and set up equipment in the house, uh, install GPS devices uh, on everyone in the house. Uh, during the setup, Boyd has a near death experience in drilling a hole in the wall. Yanked in by spirit by spirits, um, yeah. So the original was a really terrifying scene of a guy's face crumbling. Yeah, that wasn't mentioned in. Uh, I suppose it wasn't really a, a massive plot point, um. But yeah, one of the invest paranormal investigators, um, he was a bit skeptical. Yeah, same, same guy. In both, they're both skeptical, uh, and they have a, a he in the original poltergeist has a vision that his. Face is uh, is essentially falling off, like the flesh is falling off of his skull. Um, it looks a bit, you know. No, it looks naff now. But it looks naff now, but I'm assuming back in 1982, they were scared the fucking shit out of these kids <laughs> going to a PG movie. <laughs> yeah, uh, and then it's replaced by uh, a near drill to the face in three D. Near drill to the face in three D. Whilst trying to contact Maddie, Eric is ambushed in the closet by a ghost resembling her in cosplay as the remake Freddy Krueger. Um, angered, Eric breaks down the closet wall throwing a section of a broken table into the darkness uh, and it falls through the ceiling of the living room, nearly crushing Griffin, but sadly not. Um, <laughs> which reveals a potential portal for Maddie to escape through. The investigators um, confirm that the haunting is caused by a poltergeist and they invite in... Uh, the fantastic Carrigan Burke, who is revealed much later on to great comedic effect to be Dr. Powell's ex. <gasps> Carrigan explains that Maddie is a possible sidekick because, you know, why not? Able to communicate with spirits <laughs> because, of course, she is. Yes, Carol and that great sidekick from the original. Um, he reveals that the ghosts are trapped and are angry. Because only the headstones were moved into the new cemetery and the bodies remain. And they plan on using Maddie to free them from their purgatory. Great. Carrigan comes up with a plan to get Maddie back. He anchors a rope in Maddie's room and tosses it into the vortex. Lots of tossing in this film. Um, they attempt to use Griffin's toy drone to guide Maddie out. Filled with lovely uh, CGI imagery. Um, it's destroyed immediately uh, by the ghost when inside there. And yes, we, we get to see what it looks like inside the portal because it's a remake and what's the use in leaving anything to the imagination? Exactly. Griffin 
guilt-ridden over leaving Maddie alone in the first place, as he should be, goes through the portal himself. <laughs> he finds Maddie. Uh, the ghosts attempt to destroy the rope and trap them, but they grab onto the rope and fall back through the portal in the house. Both children are unconscious and covered in grey matter, not ectoplasm, to which Carrigan instructs for them to be washed and awoken in the bath. The family get in the car and begin to leave the house, but we're in 2015, so the ghosts drag not just them, but also their car back into the house uh, in an attempt to uh, abduct Maddie again, flipping the car over in the process. Maddie is dragged up the stairs because paranormal activity was released before this. The family saves her from being sucked into the portal, and Carrigan decides that he wants to be the hero uh, and must go into the vortex and lead the spirits into the light. Yeah. Uh, because he's the only other psychic other than Maddie, of course, because she's a top psychic. Uh, Kendra stamps and destroys the television screen as the ghost hands are seen trying to communicate with Maddie. Uh, and the family flee the neighbourhood as the house is destroyed by the spirit soaring into the sky as a beacon of light. The investigative team uh, run to their equipment, look for a sign at Carrigan, uh, manage to get back. As the family look for a new house, the realtor shows them a house with much closet space and an old tree in the backyard. But... Because this family are a bunch of cunts. They get in the car and drive away laughing without any explanation. Wasting that poor real estate agent's time. And then during the end credits, it's revealed that Carrigan survived the incident and now is filming his ghost program with his ex, Dr. Powell. To great hilarity. So I, I'm assuming they weren't exes by the end. No. But yeah, there we go. As I said earlier to you before recording... This film had a big budget. It had Sam Rockwell, it had Sam Raimi. There is no excuse for it to be this bad. Yeah. I mean, you had had so many points in the original film that they took and just made worse. Yeah. Like, they didn't even try to copy it. No. They just made it worse. They just tried to make it modern. Like, I'd rather they just did, like, a copycat thing. Yeah. I, I really would have preferred that. Um, they did make elements of it more modern, but it didn't really... It didn't really matter. No, because so many films took influence from Portugal's before this. Yeah. To the point it just looked like all of those. Yeah, the, the only one that really stood out was the whole idea of... Flying the um, drone into the the vortex. Um, I thought that was an interesting way to modernise it. Yeah, showing the execution was fucking terrible. But what we ended up with is really shitty looking ghostly figures. Yeah. Or whatever the fuck they were meant to be. Um, which just looked really naff. Yeah. So that brings us to cinematography, scares and soundtrack. Uh... Yeah, in 1985, cinematography is fantastic. Um, so many really haunting shots and everything that stand out, you know, in horror history. If you see them, you know what it is straight away. Mm-hmm. The same can be said about the scares and the soundtrack. The soundtrack is iconic. Uh, again, it's very Disney. It makes you feel like it's very uh, Spielberg. It makes you feel like you're in a family film. It, it does, you know, it bullies you into that false sense of security, as that, um, you know, the reviewer said. Mm. Um, you know, the scares, they use a lot of practical effects. Uh, the digital effects look very cheesy. I think that adds to the camp value, um, now. 
You yes. know, back then that would have been groundbreaking. It was nominated for an Oscar. Yeah. Um, but yeah, it's just some of the effects look cheesy, but that works now. You know, that's fun to watch. You know, the guy's face crumbling. It looks so cheesy now. Um, yeah. There, there is a camp value to the yeah. film. Absolutely. Massively gay. Yeah, it, it is. I mean, the dad's got his top off for half the yeah. bloody film. Um, there is absolute camp value yeah. to it, um, which is probably why the remake feels like it tried a little too hard. Yeah. Um, and, and sort of failed in that respect because it's not camp. Yeah. And you know we love camp. Um, yeah, I mean, the whole, you know, the whole clown scene, uh, the build-up to the clown scene, it's, it's, it's really creepy, you know, it's intense. The tree, it even, the tree looks fucking, you know, that scene is so stupid, but it's still really intense. Um, for its target mm. audience, which by, you know, going for a PG rating is families, Yeah, you know, um... It it is scary. Yeah. It, it accomplishes what it wants to do, absolutely. Whereas the remake, I, you know, a lot of uh, modern horror remakes do the whole music video thing. This didn't even have the audacity to try and be a music video. No, this was just plain boring. No thought put into it. Just so basic. The cinematography. Mm-hmm. You know, there's there's even like like you mentioned when we were watching it. You know. Some of the shots from outside the house make it look like, you know, you're expecting a serial killer to come in. It's true. Completely pointless. You know, the whole idea is that this house is haunted by a poltergeist. Why are we getting a point of view shot going up to the house as if Michael Myers is about to, you know, kill a babysitter? Yeah. The scares are just non-existent uh, because everything looks so fake. You can't be invested in a horror film where everything looks so fucking fake. It's true. Um, you know, even the whole clown scene, which they really marketed this film on, by the way. It's the main poster and everything. You know, that's what they were going for. They wanted people to think that, you know, there's a fucking killer clown throughout this fucking film by looking at the poster. Um, but even that scene, it's just so stupid. To the point you just can't take it seriously. Mm-hmm. You know, the overuse of CGI is so unnecessary. Um, and the soundtrack completely goes against what the original was doing. It is the most generic, normal-sounding modern horror soundtrack. You can't separate it from a lot of other films. Yeah, it, it, it's very generic. In, in all three aspects, cinematography, scares, yeah. and soundtrack, it's very generic. You've just kind of seen it before, seen it done much better... Um, very, very basic. And then there's the humour. You know, in the original, there's bits of humour spotted here and there throughout, um, which works to the, towards the camp value. But then in this remake... Also to the family dynamic. Yeah, yeah. But then in this remake, it is so forced into so many scenes. Yeah, it, it really is. And then the, the sort of family dynamic itself, they just kind of... You get the feeling like they don't like each other. Yeah. And that the parents regret having children. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> and, and that's kind of how it's left before the, the whole haunting, the, 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 the uh, um, whatever her name is, is it Maddie? Mm. Maddie gets taken into this uh, overworld or whatever it is. Before that happens, it is kind of just left at 
you know, having kids was the worst decision of my life. Yeah. And then you're sort of, like, meant to feel bad for them. Yeah. <laughs> when she's like, oh, my daughter, oh, Maddie, where are you? Oh, but you didn't give a shit. Like, you hope she isn't coming uh, back, let's face it. <laughs> you, you, if you didn't have kids, then uh, you probably wouldn't be maxing out three credit cards, yeah. you know? It's kind of a bit like uh, where, where are we coming from with this family dynamic Whereas in the original film, you got the impression they all liked each other, they yeah. all loved each other. You know, they squabbled, yeah. kid, like kids do. But um, they all genuinely felt, um, you know, towards each other. And when one of them left, Car- the old Ca- Caroline, then uh, they were actually really quite scared. Yeah. <laughs> and, you know, worried that she wasn't going to come back. Yeah. Cinematography scares the soundtrack all go to Portcast nineteen eighty one nineteen eighty two. Congratulations! <laughs> I don't know what Portcast nineteen eighty one is, but it probably didn't exist. So on to characters. We have a lot of characters here. Carolyn Freelin, played by Heather O'Rourke in nineteen eighty two, and Madison Bowen, played by Kennedy Clements in twenty fifteen. Um. So obviously. Carol Ann is the iconic character in yeah. the Poltergeist um, trilogy of films. Um, it all kind of centres around her, essentially. Yeah. And she does a really good job. I mean, I mean, she hasn't got the massive, you know, she needs to be scared and she needs to be a cute kid. Yeah. And she does it well. Yeah. And she can say they're here in a compelling way. Yeah. Um, unfortunately, <laughs> Maddie in the remake is incapable of any of that. I always say child actors are very hit or miss. Um, you know, I'm sure they're very difficult to work with. This is the perfect example of that. You know, Heather O'Rourke made that role iconic. Mm-hmm. Kennedy Clements just... She was just... Like all three of the kids in that film, she was a whiny bitch. She was. And I felt like they were trying too hard to make her cute. Yeah. So she ended up talking like a three-year-old. She did! Her voice was fucking weird. Yeah. Yeah, it just didn't... It it just grated with me. Yeah. Because it did just seem like they were trying so hard to mm. make her cute. Yeah. That it came off fake and annoying. Yeah. Yeah. 1982, you know, wanted little Caroline to come back. In 2015, we wanted to keep Maddie, you know. Yeah. Yeah. So, congratulations, Hero Rock, West, rest in police, rest in police, rest in peace. Fuck that one up, didn't I? Um, Diane Freelin, Joe Beth Williams, nineteen eighty two, Amy Bowen, Rosemary DeWitt, twenty fifteen. Joe Beth Williams is a fucking slay queen, Jeez. and the third act of this film, the girl gets everything, and then some. Yeah. Like, she rocks a new fucking Heather Langenkamp Nancy Thompson hairdo. She does. She's got the grey streaks. She's fucking, you know, fighting off skeletons in a swim pool. She wants her family back and she will not fucking give up. It is empowering. It, it is. is. everything I want from a strong female lead. And even before that point, that point, how exciting she gets when, you know, she fucking shows her husband the chair moving. She is just serving camp energy from start to finish. And there was no way Rosemary DeWitt was going to beat that. No. No. Um, the character's boring in the remake. She's literally... And like you said, 
She looks like every female leading the paranormal activity film. Just a little bit, bless her. It was very confused, especially the way she was dressed. Um, I don't know if it's a thing where every brunette in a horror film after a certain year has to have some sort of scarf um, <laughs> and wear a stripy top. Uh, but, you know, she wore that scarf and stripy top. and She did. She, it was, it was just, there was nothing to the role, no. unfortunately. But she's meant to be distraught that her daughter's gone, you know? She's meant to want to get her daughter back. She's meant to be fighting for her fucking daughter against these ghosts. No, she just thought she couldn't be asked. A little bit at, at times. She just, I, again, it's that whole idea that the, the, the sort of narrative came across as, you know, she wasn't even happy to have kids. Yeah. <laughs> it was so yeah. weird. It was just so weird. Yeah. So, congratulations, Joe Beth Williams. You are our Slay Queen winner. You're giving us all that energy. Uh, Steve Freeland, Craig T. Nelson in 1982, and Eric Bowen, played by Sam Rockwell in 2015. Um, I love Sam Rockwell. You know, I think he's a really great actor. Yeah. Uh, he was great in Jojo Rabbit. Free Billboard, it was fucking amazing. He won free an Oscar like a few years after this film. Yeah. Free Billboard. Yeah. And he was phenomenal in that film. Where did it all go wrong here? <laughs> I mean, at, at the end of the day, an actor is really can only be as good as the part that they're playing. Yeah. You know, if we, if if the actor's not given anything to do, then they can't do it. Mm. Essentially. Um, but also, I think he phoned it in. Oh, there seems like he so. looked like he was trying to stop himself he falling asleep. He bored in many seats. Yeah. Um, you know, the whole, the character himself, the whole storyline thing and the whole money thing won't go into it again, but it doesn't make him a likeable character when he's meant to be a responsible father and he's spending all the last bits of money and buying a house with no money. Yeah. It's, yeah. Craig T. Nelson, um, for me, he was serving Clark Griswold, who was played by Harrison Ford. There we go. <laughs> he was your typical 80s all-American dad in a film. He was great. Yeah. You know, he was so likeable. Um, you know, that sort of jolly persona that he has in the first act when he's arguing with his neighbour, uh, when they discovered a ghost stuff is going on. And then the big change-up when Carol Ann's kidnapped... You know, he changes the role. He changes it up. He felt more realistic yeah. as well as as a father. Um, I, I don't know what, I don't know why, but he just came across a little more um, real. Yeah. You know, and then that's kind of what that's what they were going for a kind of reality or a realism, excuse me, to yeah. the to the film. Um, Sam Rockwell was Sam Rockwell and all I could see was Sam Rockwell looking a bit mm. bored yeah uh, so yes Craig T. Nelson is our winner um, as, as all the gays out there would call him he's our daddy winner <laughs> yes he, he is quite handsome in a weird obviously Sam Rockwell is a very handsome man um, but in a weird way Craig T. Nelson is quite handsome well Craig T. Nelson was throwing his chest at us throughout the entire film so he was he always he always I've read his top off or he had a very low v-neck didn't he yeah so uh, Pride Month next month guys there you go there we go then watch Poltergeist Gaze um, Robbie Freeland 
I love the Robins. can enjoy it as well. Oh, yeah. But I'm all right for our gay listeners. Gays Pride and month. girls. Um, I'm doing what, you know, Sainsbury's is. I'm slapping gays on our brand. Oh, we do well, we, we always do Not that. just Sainsbury's. We always do that anyway. <laughs> um, but we're always that gay podcast. I'm going to shut up. Anyway, Robbie Freeland. Thank you. Oliver Robbins in 1982. A little fucking twat. Griffin Bowen. Kyle Catlett in 2015. Such an annoying, whingy little bastard, isn't he? He was. Yeah. Like, he's more creepy than a fucking ghost. He just goes around watching everyone. For the entire film, he's just there, like, just staring at things. The fuck off, you little weirdo. <laughs> um, I mean, Robbie Freeland has the best Star Wars collection I've ever seen. They, they were really pushing that product placement. No wonder oh, Steven Spielberg was uh, yeah. going on dates with George Lucas. Yeah, Hawaiian dates. Yeah. Yeah, and he had he had that sort of uh, Danny Torrance haircut. Mm-hmm. Um, so he definitely in keeping with the times. Yeah. 1982. Again, you know, it was likeable in 1982. It, it was realistic that he was a happy kid that was just scared of a few things. Whereas in 2015, they literally say multiple times, he's scared of everything yeah. fucking he's scared of door handles this fucking little shit just that's all he does he's just but didn't I'm the scared. mum at one point was like oh it's because I lost him at the yeah, supermarket because I lost him at the mall for three uh, three months ago yeah or three years ago three whatever. years ago it's a bit like why why are we doing this if we're not actually going to do anything with it yeah why, why are we mentioning this yeah it's not character development unless you actually develop it the whole idea is that, you know, the poltergeist plays on your fears. Um, you know, have him lost somewhere, you know, like he's in the fucking mall. I don't know. But no, they don't try and develop him. He's just a kid that's scared of everything and is really annoying. Yes. So Oliver Robbins is our winner. Uh, Dana Freeland, uh, played by Dominique Dunn, uh, 1982. Kendra Bowen by Saxon Shabino in 2015. I ain't gonna lie. This is difficult. It's because... a small role. Yeah. It's not a huge role. Um, for either. I mean, probably she gets more screen time in the remake. Mm. Um, and she's very much your stereotypical angsty teenager. Mm. Very cliched. Uh, we've seen it dozens of times now. Very yeah. boring. Um so I I would still give it to you know Dominique Dern. Well, Dominique in, Dern does the up yours and a middle finger to the construction. That is workers. very true. That is very true. That is probably her standout moment. Plus, to be fair, we can never give an award to someone who uses the exact line of dialogue. What if I need to retweet in an emergency? You yeah. automatically lost, bitch. Yeah. <laughs> so congratulations and rest in peace, Dominique Dern. Dern. And speaking of small characters, Beatrice Strait, Dr. Lesh in 1982, Jane Addams, Dr. Powell in 2015. Um, again, kind of a small role, not really much to do. Um, but it's Beatrice Strait. But it's so. Beatrice Strait, so, and she always brings it, she always does. She actually, con- considering she, it's a ridiculous film, yeah. a ridiculously camp film, there are moments where her face, you, you you kind of maybe expect her to start laughing because <laughs> it's a yeah. ridiculous thing. Yeah. But she plays it straight. She yeah. really she really does. She really commits to it yeah. as well. Um, she does a very good shocked face. She wears the shit out of those glasses. She absolutely slays oh, yeah. in those glasses. Yeah. 
And Network's one of my favourite films, so it's, I'm pleased to see her. In and it. she also doesn't have a forced comedic relationship with she Tangina. Does, um, Although, I would have loved to have seen a forced comedic relationship with Tangina. That would have been nice to see, yes. I would have liked that representation. So yes, congratulations, Beatrice. Straight, that brings us on to our final characters. But then I also feel like I know Jane Adams from other films, and I know she's a good actress. Yeah, she looks a bit like, um, what is her name? Joan from Cusack. Joan Cusack. She, does, she, she gives me like Joan, Joan Cusack. Cusack, but I think I remember her from herself. From herself? Uh, from herself. Not, not because she was <laughs> Joan Cusack. Remember her because she exists? Um, she was in Brigsby Bear. That's what oh, we've seen. Lovely. But she was in Happiness. Um, that was her big role, Happiness, which I am absolutely desperate to see. Um, but I, she was in the uh, Twin Peaks newest season. Okay. You know, so I think she's a well-accomplished actress. Just not a very exciting role for no. me. Uh, Zelda Rubenstein, uh, Rubenstein, Tangina. You've said that surname different every well, that's the last time, time I have to say it. it. So, Tangina, um, absolutely my drag name, if I ever take up drag. 1982, and Jared Harris, Carrigan Burke in 2015, and his awful Irish accent. Um, Jared Harris was in everything around this time. And I mean, if you were going to the cinema to see a new film, there's a good chance Jared Harris is going to be in it. Was he? Yeah, he was in so much. Uh, he was in The Quiet Ones, he was in Percy Jackson, he was in this, he was in a film we watched together. The Ward. Um, the Ward, The Ward, yeah. He was in so much. He was everywhere. It was him and um, The Walking Dead guy, um, Jeffrey Dean Morgan. Those two were in everything. Okay. Not together, but no. just around the same time. Why the fuck would you cast him in this role? Well, it what? is dumb. So dumb. Such an iconic role as well. If she was a throwaway character in the original, she doesn't get a lot of screen time, but everyone knows that character. They do. She is just as iconic as Carol Ann. They do. And I, I, I don't know why you made it into a dude. Why they made him into a, a dude. And, made her into a dude. Fuck's and sake. A YouTuber as well. I No, I thought that brought it up today. I thought that was very interesting... I feel like another film has done that. Yeah, Insidious. Was it Insidious? Insidious 3 took her in specs after her own YouTube channel. Do they? Yeah. I feel like another film's done. Or, or it, it has been done before. But I thought Fright it was Night. Fright, Fright David Night. David Tennant. Yes, that's the one. Fright Night. Um, where the guy's... So he kind of mentions the fact that he fakes it for the YouTube channel. Yeah, like David Tennant in Fright Night. But then he kind of knows exactly what to do and it works out. And yeah. um, it, it's it's difficult because I didn't really understand if he completely faked the whole thing or he only faked it for the YouTube channel because he was very successful in this if it was his first time dealing with a poltergeist. You know, I didn't. I didn't yeah. get it. I didn't get what this character was or was meant to be. Well, now you've mentioned it, he was dead directly because of Friday Night. Let's face it, he is that character. Yeah, he is that character. Um, I, 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 I could give you the name of hundreds of actresses I'd rather see in that role. Oh, there's so <laughs> yeah. many choices. You know, old, older 
women uh, female actresses give it as a nod all the women female actresses um who could do with the paycheck give it as a nod to the fact that insidious is a rip-off podcast give it to lynn shay well lynn shay give it to lynn shay give it like i said it jackie Jackie weaver Weaver. um you know the list goes on betty white would have betty white would have been amazing in that role if they're gonna play it as a comedy role yeah Give it to a comedian. Yeah. You know? Yeah. Is Joan Rivers alive then? Give it to Joan exactly. Rivers. Really go exactly. for it. But no, they gave it to Jared Harris. A dude. Whereas Tangina was bursting with charisma, um, you know, and camp energy, again, full of camp energy. So camp. Like, everything about her with her fucking sunglasses yeah you know, it's oh my god the way her head moves she's a gay icon that vortex she is she is actually absolute yeah. gay icon i would come out to her um <laughs> um yeah so easily tangina is the winner which now brings us to our final result and of course poltergeist 1982 to no one's surprise is our winner yes you know, again, horror classic, milestone in 80s horror films, up there with some of the best haunted house films, very influential, fun, watch it at any age, um, you know, if you haven't... Yeah, if you, fun for all the family. Yeah, if you haven't seen it, watch it. Yeah, and even with the kids, that whole face peeling scene, Yeah. Um, it, it's actually... Not as bad as... Um, well, now it is. No, it is. but Raiders of the Lost Ark, when the Nazi's yeah. face melts. That's scarier. Yeah. So, yes, do not watch the remake, but watch the original. So, best and worst of the month. My best of the month. Uh, new release of cinemas are back in full force. Uh, we have seen Spiral, which we enjoyed. Yeah. It's all right? Yeah, it was all right. It's all right. Um, it was the epitome of, yeah, that was all right. Yeah, was. yeah it was. It, it's, I'm more excited to see what they do next, uh, rather than anything happen in that film. Um, the Conjurer and the Devil Made Me Do It. Enjoyed more than Spiral. Oh, it was all right. I really enjoyed it. I, 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 I it, really was, enjoyed it, was, it. it was slightly better than Spiral, yeah. Way better than our Conjuring rip-offs that we had to watch. That is very true. Uh, but my, and of course, Nomadland, since our last episode, we watched Nomadland. Nomadland is, is fantastic. Yeah, really good. But my best of the month is a film that came out of nowhere yeah. and absolutely took me by surprise. It is The Mitchells versus The Machines, and it is on Netflix. So everyone has no excuse. Yeah, absolutely. I would say Mitchell's versus the Machines is the best film we watched this month. New yeah. release, um, because it is literally hilarious in parts. Completely caught us out of nowhere. Yeah. Um, I think it's perfect for the family. I, I genuinely amazing. Do. Watch it during Pride Month. Amazing LGBT representation. The yeah. exact type of representation we need. Yeah, the one we've been asking for. Yeah, it, it's really just a really great family film where anyone, everyone, can find something yeah. good in it. From the makers of Spider Man to the Spider Verse as well. So. I said really. Oh yeah, oh, that's not... a double whammy yeah. for them. Then. Yeah, I mean yeah. same sort of animation. And Absolutely. Everything. I mean it's on par with anything from Pixar. I yeah. would I would generally and, say that. You know, it has it also has the best scene you'll ever see involving Furbies. Yes. Worst of the month, we don't have a bad new film. We don't actually. All of the new films watched have been good at least. So we're going to resort to old films, and it's there's always vanilla. 
Yes. So we've been doing a George A. Romero marathon. And as always, Vanilla is the worst one we watched. It was awful. It was just two people talking absolute shit. Yeah. For an hour and a half. We switched it off, didn't yeah. we? Yeah. Nothing, just, nothing interesting happened. Just talking absolute bollocks. Yeah. Really, just... And I, I can't say anything but that, because that's all there was to it. Yeah. That was it. You know, we've... I mean, I've discovered that Romero is a better filmmaker than I initially... I mean, I don't know what I expected from the guy who made the trilogy of the dead, but, you know, a lot of his other films that I expected to be not so great were all, have all been really great, but that one was just bottom of the barrel trash. Mm. Yeah. So that brings us to the end of this uh, month's original remake. We don't know what we're doing next month yet because Chris is in charge. No, I'll say it now. We're doing Suspiria. Oh, there we go. There we go. There we go. Bringing more camp energy for uh, Pride Month. Yes. Back on Tuesday with Luke Poulton returning to the podcast. Uh, we were going to do the Gay Bed and Breakfast of Terror. But we can no longer get hold of the gay bed and breakfast and terror. It's really difficult to get hold of. So we are now doing bit, which looks wonderfully trashy. It does. That's why it's start does. Pride Month. <laughs> if you're listening on iTunes, don't forget to rate if you subscribe, like, follow, and everything else. We're Horacle Trash over on Facebook and Instagram. Horacle Trash on Twitter. I'm Dead at Gaz92 on Letterboxd, Gazmo205 on Instagram, and GazCruise92 on Twitter. I'm ChrisBarker823 on Instagram, Twitter, and Letterboxd. And we will see you on Tuesday. Bye.